Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. So when you think of some of the greatest criminal minds in history, you might think fiction, right? Some people may think uh, along the lines of those who were there to capture these great criminal minds, people like uh, Heracles Perot, right, from Agatha Christie, or, or maybe you think the Napoleon of crime, right, Professor Moriarty. Maybe you think real life, you think of great unsolved or uh, fantastic capers like the exploits of John Dillinger, who robbed 24 banks in, the, in his time. Or maybe D.B. Cooper, who in 1974 disappeared with $200,000 off a flight. But I find it interesting that there's very little mention of the person I'm going to introduce you to tonight. His total amassed uh, worth at the end of his career was about $1.4 billion. He had successfully pulled off over 200 museum heists with minimal violence, minimal suspicion, and in most cases, in broad daylight. This man's name was Stephane Brettweiser, and he was a true cat burglar and is often regarded as the greatest thief of all time. Now, his first museum heist came when he was around 22 years old. He had just gone through a serious emotional trauma. His father had uh, up and left his family, his mother, and left he and his mother destitute without much financial stability or security. And he had started dating a new uh, lady at the time. And I read to you an account of his first heist. This is from an article, an interview in GQ magazine. A few months later, the couple, Breitweiser and his girlfriend, were visiting a museum in the French village of Thon when Breitweiser spotted an antique pistol. His first thought, he recalls, was that he should already own something like this. Breitweiser's father had collected old weapons but had taken them with him when he'd left the family, not bothering to leave a single piece for his son. The firearm, exhibited in a glass case on the museum's second floor, was hand-carved around 1730. It was far nicer than anything his father had owned, and he felt an urge to possess it. The museum was small, no security guard or alarm system, just, just a volunteer at the entrance booth. The display case itself, Breitweiser noted, was partially open. He was wearing a backpack and could easily hide the pistol in there, now, one must resist temptation, he knew. It even says so in the Bible, not that he was particularly religious. What our heart really wants, we must often deny. Maybe this is why so many people seem conflicted and miserable, he thought. We are taught to be at constant war with ourselves, as if it were a virtue. What would happen, he wondered, if he did not resist temptation? If instead he fed temptation and freed himself from society's repressive restraints. 
Now, ultimately, his prolific career began in 1993 and ran up until 2019 when he had, like I said, stolen over 300 pieces of art over some, across somewhat 200 guarded institutions, most of them, some of the most well-guarded museums in Europe. In fact, at one point, his heist accounted for over half of the stolen paintings in France in a given year. But as we know, all things have to come to an end. And ultimately, Breitweiser was incarcerated numerous times, serving his time and being paroled until most recently, actually after this article came out, when this article had gone to print, he had been investigated by the Swiss government since about 2016. And there's an addition to this article that said at the time of its writing, he had been cornered and questioned, and ultimately at the age of 51, incarcerated as of 2019 and awaiting prison or awaiting trial in France. He never got out of it. He never left it. It was a drug for him. Now, what I find interesting and fascinating about his almost Hollywood-esque exploits is not the fact that he is considered one of the greatest thieves of all time, but ultimately his motivations behind initially engaging in this heights. If you remember, just in what I recently read, it said he believed that he should own that pistol. He thought it should have already been his, right? And it was this idea, this sense that it belongs to me, even though I don't have it already, that ultimately corrupted him and frankly ruined what could have been a very promising life. So tonight, we look at the Eighth Commandment. This is uh, obviously how not to steal or not how not to steal. How not to steal is just don't do it. You should not steal, sorry. You should not steal. And I titled this, How to Make Enemies and Anger People. A little tongue-in-cheek as it plays on the title of the famous book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. But if we think about it, this really lies at the core of where we're going. Now, let me not get ahead of myself. I want to just focus first off on the passage in Exodus 20. You shall not steal. Exodus 20, 15. As with the last couple of commandments I and Joel have had, they're very short, only four words. It's kind of difficult to exegete a passage, only four words. But I do think it's important to at least look at the original text here as it is associated. The word for steal is the Hebrew word ganab. And this word sometimes means to obtain by some type of deceit, as in the case of Jacob and Isaac, when uh, Jacob goes to obtain the birthright by deceit from his father. But in almost every case, it implies the taking away of something from its rightful owner. Numerous times in the Bible, when thievery is mentioned, it's always mentioned in a prohibitory sense as well in a condemned sense. It also has implications of surprise. If you think about in the New Testament, very often it says that God will come like a thief in the night. This idea, the connotation associated with it, is that you will not know what is going to happen. There's a sense of surprise, a sense of unassumingness. You will be caught unaware. 
And so the idea that the Bible presents about thievery or about stealing is never in a positive case. It's never in any way that can be uh, glorified, as we often do in our society with things like this. It can never be advocated for, and there's really no way to argue for it in a beneficial way. There's no way to steal positively. So the question then we have to ask tonight then is why is stealing considered so affrontive to God that he would list it among his commandments, among things like adultery and murder, and as we're going to get to later on, bearing false witness, coveting your neighbor's items, or even in the greater list of don't have another God other than myself, don't create any graven images, right? Why is thieving or stealing so affrontive to God? Well, in true Baptist fashion, I give you three reasons why I think this is so uh, affrontive to the Lord. Reason number one is that it's intrinsically linked to the indulgence in other sinful activities. At its core, it is prideful, it is greedy, it has malice, and it is a form of idolatry. Stealing is ultimately giving in to our most basic of urges, right? It is giving over to something for the desire of something that we don't have. And if you remember the article, even the uh, Stephane Breitweiser, even he acknowledged that there is a temptation that he should have resisted, that there's something to this. I mean, he, he said, I was not overtly religious, but at least he knew the Bible presents this as wrong. But he wondered, what happens if I give in to temptation? What happens if I just indulge myself just a little bit? You see, there's a craving here. Whenever we desire to steal something from somebody else, it stems from some other sinful desire that we have. And since not all things we steal are physical, right? I mean, you can obviously steal an object. But some things that we steal are not a physical object. Some things that are stolen are uh, more abstractive. Things like time, things like virtue, things like confidence, right? You've heard of a con man. A con man is someone, the word con comes from confidence. They are building confidence in somebody for the sake, of, or building confidence, you're understanding them as being someone that, that you can be confident in their sincerity so that they can defraud you or take from you. So not every object is actually Physical, And I think that each one of these, whether it's an object or a state of something, the two things that potentially could be stolen, that there are different sins attached to it. For objects, it's greed and idolatry and lust, something that you just want to obtain for yourself. But for states of things, things like virtue or confidence or other things like that, it's jealousy or malice or actual just oppression. But all of these have in them an understanding that it relates back to pride. You see, no one starts out with their life wanting to be a thief. I can imagine this young man who's actually only about, I think, 10 years older than me. I think actually nine years. He was born in 1971, so nine years older than me. Um, 
this gentleman started off just like a normal little boy. Maybe he had some hard times at home. Maybe he didn't. I didn't really delve too much in his backstory, but that's not the point. He still starts off with the same imago day, the same opportunities, potentially, that anyone else does. No one starts off thinking, you know what, I'm going to be a career criminal. Obviously, it's a series of decisions that they make over time that lead them from point A to point B to point C and ultimately down the line. No one starts off thinking, this is what I'm going to be known for. But ultimately, as he gives into his sinful desires, as we move the ball further and further along this path, your path starts to narrow. Your opportunities to remove yourself from it become less frequent. And slowly but surely, you become more and more what you do. As James says, it's when this thought gives birth to sin, and then ultimately sin gives birth to death. It starts as a progression. But like I said, let's go back to this element of pride, because this is what I think is the, is the key point here. There's nowhere I think it's more evident that sin is the root of all pride than it is in the act of thievery and stealing. Right? Remember what we said in the article. He thought that he should already have the pistol. Right? It could be anything, right? And often we see this. Even if you watch little children on a playground, little two, three-year-old little children, when they're playing with each other's toys, when one child takes the toy from another child, right? even in the simplest, most basic of definitions, they have stolen that toy from that child. Obviously, what does the other child do? Mom! Right? They realize that something is wrong. They realize something bad has happened. Why? Because we intrinsically know the boundaries between different objects and ownership. We know that if you have possession of something, it's yours. And for me to come and take that is me exerting pridefully myself and my nature over you. It's to say... I deserve what you have, you don't. It needs to be mine. It should be mine. And also, we bear in this, this interesting idea of because you can do it, you should do it. I remember in high school, I read a, I had to read a book, probably one of the only books I actually read in high school, unfortunately, but it was still... One of my favorite, I guess I can say that because there was not many I did read. It was a book called Once and Future King by a guy named T.H. White. And it's actually the compiled, Anglicanized legend of King Arthur. And in it, there's a famous kind of phrase that kept coming up. And I still to this day, even though that was, gosh, 25 years now, from my sophomore year in high school, I still remember to this day my, prof- my, not my professor, my teacher making a big deal of this phrase and asking us numerous times, does might make right? Because that's often a theme in this book, in The Legend of King Arthur, that might doesn't always make right. And what did he mean by that? Just because you have the physical capability, the strength to do something, that does not mean that it is right. 
Well, I started thinking about that when I was thinking about the idea of theft, right? For often, I mean, where do we picture the idea of thievery coming in? When somebody wants something that someone else has, and by using strength of arm or strength of weapon or strength of mind, they take it. Highwaymen, burglars, petty thievery, right? Someone who strong arms somebody. Even in Jesus' day, think about the Samaritan who was beaten within a, a not the good Samaritan, the, the, the Jew who was beaten in the story of the Good Samaritan to within an inch of his life and robbed, right? We have this idea that people want things, they take them by force. But obviously, <laughs> there's something affrontive to this to us. We know that's wrong. There, there's something intrinsic to who we are that says this is not right. Now, even Jesus tells us in John that the thief which he's referencing the one who is coming to you, coming to his flock, not by the normal means, right? Not by the central gate, but comes in through the window. And I want to come back to that idea, someone who comes in not through the natural means. But the thief is the one who does not come in normally and comes to his flock. That thief is here to only kill and steal and to destroy now, we associate this with the uh, image of Satan, the devil, the, the one who comes to take from us. What I think is interesting is this idea also has in it that he's coming to take what cannot easily be returned. He's going to steal from you. He's going to kill you. And he's going to destroy what you have. These things are not things that can be easily undone or returned. And when Christ is comparing himself to him, he says, but I come to bring life and to bring it abundantly and full. So number two, the second reason why I think thievery is so affrontive to the Lord, it's doing unto others differently than you would want done to you. In Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, Jesus gives us a summation of the commandments in just the two, and you know them, right? Love the Lord your God, love your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? These are the embodiments of the commandments that he gives. And notice these commandments are not new ones in the sense that they are replacing. They are actually completing the commandments. They are encapsulating the commandments as themselves. At the beginning, Dr. Spivey, when he did the introduction, had talked about how the Ten Commandments, while there are ten, there is a dividing line that is implicit in there where the first four relate to our relationship to God, that vertical relationship. And then the last six relate to our human relationships, our horizontal ones. And that's really what Jesus is saying. Love the Lord your God, right? That's that vertical relationship. But ultimately, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the horizontal. Well, the idea of stealing completely goes against that horizontal relationship. If somebody has ownership of something, if someone has worked hard for their thing, if someone has the possession of something, both object or abstract, if it's theirs, there should be some understanding of security in that ownership. If you want it and you take it, you have violated in that action alone that second part of the commandment because you don't want someone taking it from you. It's interesting how that turns very quickly on itself. 
I take from somebody and now it's mine. But would you allow someone to take it from you? No. That's the reason you took it to begin with. You see, there is a horizontal relationship that exists in who we are. And the things we do greatly affect it. it this aggression, this act that we present against our fellow man is ultimately, I think, what really gets this thing going, what really sets it on its path. If you think about it, even Adam and Eve were given something. They were given a garden. They were given a home. They were given stability. They were given a place with which to dwell. But even Satan took that, right? He stole it from them and the ownership of the earth at that fall, which is why I interestingly think when Jesus talks to Satan, when Satan comes to tempt him in uh, John 4, sorry, Luke 4, where Satan says, I can give this to you because it has been given to me to do with who I wish. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. I think that there is an ownership exchange where the giving of the land and the earth to Adam and to Eve was ultimately passed to Satan when he stole it from them at the fall in the act of sin. Now, more to the point, it's also an affront to our own democratic and ordered nature. We have a democracy here. And understanding that in a society that is democratic, that there is certain aspects of our freedoms that we have to cede to the betterment of society. Now, some people would consider this some form of social contract theory, going back all the way to the Enlightenment, to John Locke. I would just say it makes good sense. I don't want you speeding around me, therefore it makes only sense that I'm not going to speed around you, right? There's some level of social freedom that we give up for the betterment of society. Well, to, to be a thief completely upends this idea, right? You're not benefiting anybody but yourself. You're usurping the good of the group and the stability of the organization and of society for your own personal gain. If we left it to this, right, if this was the actual way of the world, that if you want, excuse me, if you wanted something, just take it, we'd be left in utter chaos. It'd be the Wild West all over again. And as much as I love my John Wayne movies, I, I, I don't want to end up in a society where people just want something and just come take it. Right? We work too hard for our things. That was a joke. No one laughed. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Lastly, it is seeking provision from some means that is not natural other than the provision of the Lord. Now, go back to my idea of the garden. God initially gave Adam and Eve a methodology for flourishing. Tend the garden, be fruitful, multiply, follow my commands. This was how they were to operate. Even after the fall, they were given a set of parameters and a direction, even in the pronouncement of the curse, right? Mankind at that point would have to work for his provision. God would remove himself from 
his sustainment and man would have to then work and toil for his sustenance. But it's still God provided a way and an order and a natural means by which man could work and gain some sense of return. Now, like I said, I don't want to miss this. There's a natural order to this process. Work ultimately provides return, and return is consumed for some sort of sustenance. Now, in the simplest sense, you till the ground, it produces food. Food sustains your body so that you can go till the ground some more. This is part of the fall, and it sounds simplistic. But even now, if we take our paychecks, right, and get them cashed, that provides for us a means with which to pay for the goods that we need to sustain ourselves. It's a very simple paradigm. Even Paul talks about this in the letter to the, uh, in the second letter to the Thessalonians. He explains this rule of provision, and he even doubles down on it and says, we did not come to you begging for anything. Even though that it was in our right that you would provide for us, we did it to set an example for you, to show you that to work is beneficial. If you work, then you eat. In fact, anyone who does not work should not eat. This is just part of the paradigmatic structure. So to be then a thief is to deny the natural order of God's paradigm that he set up after the fall for man to proceed with. If you steal, now some people would argue, and trust me, I've, I've heard the arguments, that's a form of work, right? I'm working hard to steal this. Okay, give me a break. Let, let's, let's, let's call it what it is. You're trying to cheat the system. And as we all know, right, cheaters never prosper, or at least in the long term. But the point is, to go outside of that paradigmatic structure, to go in a way that does not provide any means for which there is a positive return, is to, again, pridefully think that you can cheat the system. And this is, I think, ultimately what is most affrontive to God. You are not trusting in his provision or his structure that he set up. You're trying to go outside of that to get some other gain. This is why I think that God prohibits gambling. You're trying to go against the normal structure of working to provide a return and a return to provide sustenance. You're trying to cheat the system and go through some other means of provision other than the standard by which God has set. Now, we talk about this standard, and we have to think about, okay, maybe that appeals or applies to those who are non-Christians. But as a Christian, your life is different, or it should be. But Paul even references this too. In the passage that Kate read in Ephesians 4, it says that, you should not walk in the way you used to, right? He even says that the thief should no longer steal. Why? Because God provided for you a new life, a spiritual return that ultimately sustains your spirit and your soul far into the afterlife. 
See, the paradigm even breaks down to a spiritual nature. God's provision feeds your soul eternally. So to go outside of your nature that has been changed is, again, to seek a way outside of the natural order that God has provided through the salvation in his son Jesus. You're breaking what is ultimately the greatest gift of all. You're going against the nature of Christ, especially if we go back to the idea that Jesus is the one that gave us the summation of that commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. If Christ won't stand for it on one level, how in the world can the Christian nature that you have now stand for it as well? So let's kind of draw this thing to a close. If you remember in Tolkien's Ring trilogy, he introduces us to a character named Smeagol. Now Smeagol, this sad creature, was actually once a proud, humble hobbit. But that all changed when he found the One Ring. Now, the One Ring, ultimately, the possession of it, drove him mad. And it was the desire for the ring, while giving him ultimately a long life, it withered away his sanity, his body, and ultimately his morality. Now, when it was found in the Misty Mountains by Bilbo Baggins and taken back home to the Shire, Smeagol was sent on a crusade, a hell-bent driven rage to obtain this ring again, whatever the cost, no matter who he killed, no matter what happened, no matter what happened to himself, he was consumed with getting this back. Well, I think about this in terms of the act of stealing. There's an unspoken relationship that comes into play whenever a person desires to steal from somebody else. There's three things in, in, in effect here. There's the person who has whatever it is that is wanted, the person who wants whatever it is that is going to be taken, and then the object itself. And the person who desires said object has to make a decision. Am I willing to sacrifice my own value my own virtue, my own morality? Am I willing to give up what I know now simply to obtain this? And it seems like to me this relationship is profound in that we see it happening. We know, right? We know there are laws in place. If I go walk into a bank right now and hand them a note that says, give me all the cash, what is going to happen to me the minute I walk out the bank? Maybe not immediately, maybe a few minutes or a few hours later, but at some point, let's be honest, I'm going to get caught. Lord knows, I am no D.B. Cooper, right? I am going to get caught. And what happens with that, of course, comes shame, incarceration, losing of freedoms. I mean, my life is upended as I know. So you see the risk-reward system as it plays out. What rational person goes into this decision thinking, well, the risk may be there, but the reward is so much greater. I think about this character of Smeagol who has given up everything in pursuit of this one thing. 
And I think that that's where people find themselves. They pridefully think, not only can I escape the, the risk, they're betting against the odds. I think I can get away with it. I think I can do it and not get caught. You know, and the scary thing is, you might, for a time. But the Bible tells us in Ephesians as well, after that passage in Ephesians 5, that all things ultimately come out in the light of truth. All things are found out at some point. So to commit yourself to a life of theft and stealing, ultimately, is to supplant a natural desire for righteousness as we are... I would say built with, to seek after God, to pursue a righteous life and a moral life for desire for more inanimate objects. In other words, a form of idolatry. It's only when we embrace our position in life, when we accept our lot, when we come to a place where we say, God's provision is good enough for me. It's only when we accept that and in our own humility, graciously thank the Lord for what he's given us, that we can truly see God properly. Anything else is an affront to God. Now, I'm going to ask Noah and his group to come back up. At this time, the front is open if you need to come and pray. I don't think anybody here would feel comfortable to admitting to grand larceny in public. But God knows what you're struggling with. God knows what you're thinking. And like I said, thievery is not just something as, as mundane as just taking physical objects. Sometimes it's the theft of virtue. It's the theft of, of confidence. It's the theft of a state. Maybe you have taken something, a good name from somebody by slandering them. Maybe you have stolen time from somebody through hatred that you, they can't get back. Well, there are ways to deal with that tonight. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817 817- 926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.